John chapter 20. And we're studying the 12, and we're going to look at Thomas tonight. And uh, Thomas is one of those guys, that I, I think unfairly, sometimes he gets a little bit of a bad rap. And so we're going to see him tonight and hope it'll be a blessing to you. I'd invite you to stand, please, and we're going to read the Bible. I hope you love the Bible. I hope it's a blessing to you. Uh, we are emphasizing this week Bible readers, and so I asked Brother Gabe to put on our, our sign out there a picture of the Bible. And he said, what should I put on it? And I, I put, just put this, have you read your Bible today? Because I want people driving by to think, you know what, I probably should read that thing. It's amazing how many people in America have a Bible in their home and never touch it, never read it. And I hope I'm not preaching to people who never touch and pick up your Bible, because it's an amazing book. And let's look at it tonight. John chapter 20, begin reading in verse 24. It says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, remember we're calling our series the twelve, it seems like the Gospels just keep referring to this group as the twelve. So Thomas, he was one of the twelve, called Didymus, if you study the Bible you'll find, uh, this is kind of one of those trivia questions, Didymus means twin, so apparently Thomas was a, was a twin, and uh, that's about all we know about it, but that's, the Bible points that out a little bit. It says he was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said in him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side. Notice this. I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within. So they had church again the next Sunday. And Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. you got to give Thomas credit. He had an amazing response. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet half believe. You know, we didn't get to see what Thomas saw, but I'm looking at the faces of many who believe in the risen Lord. And Jesus said, blessed are you, you've received the testimony of these men that saw him. And I'm thankful for that tonight. Let's learn from Thomas. Not doubting Thomas, but disbelieving Thomas. Let's learn from him this evening. Heavenly Father, fill me with thy spirit and help me to communicate the truth of your word. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith tonight. And if somebody's here and they have their doubts... If somebody's here and they're disbelieving, I pray that you would work in their heart and their life and strengthen us in this area. We know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and so we're trying to preach and teach your Word, so please increase our faith. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Tony Campolo is a Christian sociologist. And again, you understand when I'm using somebody as an illustration from something I've read or whatnot, I'm not necessarily endorsing them or, uh, fully or anything like that. I think sometimes I need to say that. But Tony Campolo was giving a lecture at a college university, and he was asked by a student that said this. They said, Doctor, you seem, you seem like a reasonable, intelligent man. How can you really believe the Bible? Here was his response. He said, it's easy. I decided to. He said, I have to explain, once I decided that I believe in the Bible, I have spent the next 35 years of my life accumulating arguments to support what I already believe. 
But the reason only came in afterwards, it only supported what I'd already committed myself to. Now these people like this, I'll tell you, I respect people like this because I read stuff and all the time I'm thinking, man, these guys are so sharp, man. How did they figure that out? You say, well, I don't know if that sounds so sharp. Well, let me finish the quote. He went on to say this. He said, now before, to this student, he said, now before you get nasty with me, I've got to ask you a question. Why don't you believe the Bible? He said, isn't it because you've already decided to? Please don't tell me you've read it from cover to cover. Spare me that. And don't give me all that jazz that it's full of contradictions because you can't name five. Somewhere along the line, you decided not to believe. And after you decided not to believe, you've been accumulating support to your commitment of non-belief. Man, I like that stuff. I'm not the guy that can think of it, but I'll stand behind him and go, yeah, take that. I guess the point I'm trying to make tonight with that illustration is there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. You see, doubt is often an intellectual problem. We want to believe, but our faith is overwhelmed by questions. Listen, I have no doubt that the people sitting in this room, there have been many of you that want to believe, but many times you've been overwhelmed by questions. I don't think there's really any thinking person in this room tonight that, that has not asked the question, is God real? I mean, is there really a God? That, that's a legitimate question to ask. I, I think every thinking person in this room has had doubts about whether God is good. You know, we, we have had some experience in our life that, that we didn't script, that we didn't necessarily in the moment appreciate at the time, kind of like was sung about tonight, every tapestry that's woven. We, we have sorrow and we have joy, and it's kind of woven in there. And, and many of us have experienced some pain and grief in our life, and we've, we've kind of asked the question sometimes, is God good? Because that, I think it's a reasonable question. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? We've, we've all asked that question. Isn't that the theme of Job? If God's good, why do bad things happen to good people and so on and so forth? Those are legitimate questions. I mean, I love the Bible. I really love the Bible. And I, I hope it shows in the way I talk about it and, and its effect on my life. But I think every thinking person has asked, is the Bible really God's word? I mean, is it really? Now, I will say this. I'll take a time out. I, I, I am fortunate God called me to preach His Word, and basically every day of my life I, I get to study it, and that's just kind of what, what the primary responsibility that I have. And, and, and I'll tell you, after years and years and years of study of the book, you would think by now, if, if it's not God's Word, I would have come to that conclusion. You know what? I'm kind of losing faith. But the truth is, the more I study, the more I'm convinced of the power and the authority of this book being God's Word. But I'd be lying to you if I've never asked the question, is this really? Is this really God's Word? Aren't there errors in it? You ever ask this question, is there really a hell? You ever ask the question, if there is a hell, why would a good God send people there? I mean, these are questions people ask, and they're not bad questions. But I think sometimes if we really have doubt, again, that's an intellectual problem. We want to believe, but sometimes our faith is overwhelmed by these good questions. And so we say like the disciples, Lord, I believe. Help me, church. Help my unbelief. Right? That's doubt. 
But see, unbelief or disbelief, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. You see, unbelief refuses to believe. It's, it's kind of like saying, I won't believe. So see, doubt is kind of maybe saying, well, I can't. I'm really struggling there. But, but unbelief is saying, I won't. And that's kind of what you see in, in Thomas, isn't it? Look at verse 25 again. Hey, they, man, these guys are fired up. I, I mean, I circled this in my Bible. We have seen the Lord. I mean, can't you, can't you hear their intensity when you read that? I mean, they, those guys get out of church and they bump into Thomas. Where were you? And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but where were you, man? We have seen the Lord. And notice what he says. Except I shall see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand inside. Notice this. I mark this. I will not believe. He didn't say, I'm having a hard time believing. I can't believe that. He said, I won't believe that. You see, there's a difference between the two. Now, it may sound like intellectual, this, this idea of unbelief, it may sound like intellectual and sophisticated questions, but usually when people, some snarky dude on the internet or whatnot, it's usually just evidence of a hard heart, not a searching mind. There are some people that have a searching mind. They want to know, and they have legitimate questions, but they want to know. But I'm telling you, there are some hard-hearted, morally bankrupt people that they don't want to know, and they may ask questions, but they don't really want to know the answers. They don't have a searching mind. They have a hardened heart. So what was it that Thomas wouldn't believe? He stubbornly refused to believe the testimony of ten close friends. Now, why in the world would they lie to him? Why would they make this up? These people were credible witnesses. They had seen Jesus with their own eyes, and he said, I will not believe you. So, really, this text is about unbelief more than it is about doubt. We so often call him old doubting Thomas. In fact, it's become a part of our common vernacular. Sometimes we even say this, well, I'm not trying to be a doubting Thomas or anything like that. And the truth is, is he really wasn't a doubter. He was an unbeliever in some respects. So I want to give you tonight, I want to give you three thoughts about unbelief. Three thoughts about unbelief. Number one, there are reasons for unbelief. Again, Thomas is usually nicknamed Doubting Thomas, but it's not, not the most fitting label, just disbelieving Thomas. But let me ask you this question. Why was he the way he was? Why was he the way he was? I put down this. First thought about the way he was, the way he was, was he, he was just that way in his natural disposition. If you study Thomas, there's not a whole lot about him in the Gospels. There's enough for us to recognize that Thomas was a pessimist. And some people are just naturally pessimistic. Listen, I can look around this room, and I don't know everybody very, very well, but some of you are just optimistic. I mean, man, I mean, you just, everything's going to work out. This is going to work out. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. I love, I love you and everything. I love everything. Some of you are just wired that way. There are others that are wired the exact opposite. I mean, you say something, and it's like, well, you know. And it's just their natural disposition. I mean, it's kind of like I, I heard the story of a man, he had a bird dog. And I don't know if you've ever seen somebody has bird, had bird dogs. I mean, some of those dogs are, are worth thousands and thousands of dollars and, and hours and hours of training. 
And he had this particular bird dog, and he was so proud of his bird dog because his bird dog could do something that no other bird dog could do. This bird dog, you could shoot a duck on water, and this bird dog could literally walk on water. It'd walk right out on the water and go out and get those ducks and bring it back. And so he had a friend who, who could be a pessimist, and he brought him duck hunting. He said, I want to see what my friend thinks about this dog. And so, man, he blasted some ducks, and that dog took off across that water, got, got, went out there and got those ducks, and that, that, that brought those things back. And that man was just beaming from ear to ear, and he looked at his pessimistic friend, and he said, uh, hey, did you, did you notice anything about my dog? And his friend looked at him and said, yeah, your dog doesn't know how to swim. There's some people, that's just how they are, right? I mean, they're just going to see the negative in everything. <laughs> hey, the good news is, I heard somebody say this, borrow money from a pessimist. They never expect to get it back. <laughs> well, well, Thomas was one of those guys. In the Gospel of John, you're able to see some glimpses of him. If I take you back, do you remember in John chapter 11, that's when Lazarus is dying. Remember Mary and Martha, they send word, come, come quick, we know that you can heal our brother, and, and Jesus is kind of dragging his feet, and, he, and, and of course he knows what he's going to do, he's going to let Thomas, or excuse me, Lazarus die, and, and that way when he raises him back to life, greater glory is brought to, to Jesus and brought to the Lord, and, and, and so he lets him die, and that, 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 that whole situation, and, and in that story, they reminded Jesus when he says, hey, let's go back uh, to Bethany there, they reminded Jesus that the Last time he went there, he was almost killed. They almost stoned him there. And finally, Jesus says, well, we're, we're going to go. And, and, and if you remember, Thomas gives these words. This is what he says. And I can just hear him saying it. Well, let's go also that we may die with him. Now, I mean, you kind of have to give him some credit that he was willing to die for the Lord and die with the Lord but his attitude is just so negative. It's like, well, we try to tell him not to go. We try to tell him that if he goes, he's going to die. But let's go with him. We're all going to die. You know? I mean, he's just kind of got this negative disposition about himself. He was just a naturally pessimistic problem, a, a person. And so I say to you, his personality was part of his problem. And it may just be that some of you struggle with some of these th same things, with doubt or unbelief, because you are a naturally pessimistic person. And here, here, I'm not saying that to chide you. Now, I do believe one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit working in your life is that you have joy, which is kind of a, more of an optimistic approach to things. But I'm not chiding you or getting on to you. What I am saying is if you are a pessimistic person, at least recognize that tendency in your life. Pay attention to it. Because it explains why you might struggle with some of the things that you struggle with. I want you to notice something else, though. It wasn't just his disposition that led to this problem. I want you to notice that it was also his, his tendency that led to, to isolation that compounded this problem. Notice in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, now, basically, let, let me just do this, because I'm going to do a little preaching and apply it to modern day. But think about this. Basically, what Thomas did is he skipped the Sunday evening service. Now, now listen, I'm going to apply this to, to modern day. 
Do you know that the, 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 what seems to me to be the popular trend in Christianity at large is to have church on Sunday morning, cancel Sunday night church, no Sunday night church, because you know you, you got to spend time with family, but what that usually means is uh, some teenager's going to work and dad's mo- watching a football game and mom's reading a book or doing whatever, and they're not worshiping. I think you can spend, a, again, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but I think you can spend some time as a family sitting on a pew together. But I digress. So we're going to cancel Sunday night service and then kind of have some small group throughout the week. Well, again, I want to be intentional about what we do here. Notice that these guys gather together in the evening. I think there's some significance of that. And he wasn't there. He skipped church. Now, now let's ask a question. Why did he do that? Why did he skip church? Now, biblically speaking, we don't know. We could guess. Maybe because Jesus had died, uh, he was in no mood to socialize. Now, come on. Some of us in this room are introverted people. You, You understand, I think introverts get a bad rap. A lot of people think introverts are shy, backward people. They're not. Listen, I've taken a personality test probably four times, official ones. I mean, like the E, T, J, S, D, whatever those things are. Every single time, I am an introvert. Now, you listen to me preach up here, and you're like, no, no. Yes! Introverted people are not shy people. I'm not shy. My second grade teacher told my parents at parent-teacher conference that I would talk to a corpse. (laughs) I spent the whole year at a desk in the corner by myself. So I'm not shy. I've never been shy. But I tell you, here's what happens. I think, I think introverted people, they, they need some time alone to recharge. But extroverted people, they need to be around people to, to, to charge. And, and there's some of you in here, I mean, everywhere is a party. And if there isn't a party, you bring a party with you. And it's just like, ah! And, and there's some of us that are like, yeah, you need to chill out and stop. Right? <laughs> right? Well, I think we could go out on a limb and say that, that Thomas was a more introverted person. So, so maybe he was just saying, you know what, right now in my life, I don't feel like socializing with anybody. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, there have been times, even as the pastor, I didn't feel like being here socializing with people. I know it gets quiet and everybody's like, what? can't believe you said that. But let me tell you something, that's not an excuse not to be in your place. Maybe he was just too busy. Now, I'm going to get preachy right here because I hear that one all the time. Hey, I haven't been seeing you lately. Well, it's been busy. You know, my flesh wants to punch people in the nose when I hear that. Because it bothers me as if they are insinuating that I'm not busy. Listen, if you want to know what busy is, I'll compare my schedule to yours if you want me to. Like, I'm so tired. Like, like I want to look at people and like, oh, you're busy? Let me tell you what busy is, pal. And I was there Sunday night. And I was there Wednesday night. And I'll be there the next Sunday night. And I was here before you were, and I was the last one to turn the lights up. Don't talk to me about busy, right? You know what I mean? That's kind of how I want to react. You know, you're, you can always have time for what you want to do. Well, I was tired. Well, again... Who isn't? 
get mad when people fall asleep in church like, hey, wake up, you know, that kind of thing. But you know now, you know, I'd just rather you fall asleep than at home. I saw Leon tonight. I said, I said, hey, man, did you work today? He goes, yeah, man, I worked long today. I said, well, you get a good nap while I'm pre- preaching. He said, well, I need to get one because I ain't going to get one when I get home with that baby. <laughs> so if Leon, if I keep going and you just slump over in the pew there, it's all right, brother. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm glad you're sleeping here, you know. I know I need to hurry. I could see Thomas saying this. Well, I didn't feel like coming because if Peter is preaching, I didn't want to go. You know, I've heard church members do that. Well, you know, if that assistant's preaching, I'll just stay home. I don't want to hear him preach. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Whatever reason it was, it wasn't worth it. See, see, here's what I know about Thomas. We don't know why he stayed home, but here's what we do know. He ended up with an extra week of unnecessary discouragement. Had he been there, he would have seen what they all saw. And instead, for another eight days, he had to live with this unnecessary discouragement that could have been helped if he had been in his place. You see, when Christians are in fellowship uh, with Christ, they desire and seek fellowship of his people. And when they are out of fellowship with the Lord, they have little or no desire with fellowship with believers. And again, the point I'm trying to make is solitude only feeds discouragement and helps it grow into self-pity, which is way worse than discouragement. I know I'm not trying to downplay depression and discouragement, but I know what happens is when people are depressed and discouraged, they just want to be by themselves. They want to be all alone. They they, they, they want to stay at home and shut themselves in a room. And I understand you feeling that way. I literally do, and I'm not trying to be a hardhead about that. But I'm telling you, if you allow yourself to do that, what happens is you will spiral down further and develop a sense of self-pity, which is way worse than the feeling you're experiencing. You've got to be around people. You've got to. If, If COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us the necessity of being around other people. Today I got to go to the hospital and visit Lance and Lauren. And, and let's be honest, let's just be honest, most or many times, newborns are ugly. Now you can't say that to the mom, but it's just true. I mean, sometimes their heads are crazy shapes, I mean, their faces are all squinty, they're weird colors, and they just look like raisins or something like that. You just like, you know, and the mom's like, oh, it's so good. And I said, okay. But this guy, Luke, he's a handsome guy. He got a good head of hair, got some big cheeks. I mean, he's a good-looking guy. And I went into the the hospital today to to visit them, and I went into the lobby. And when I walked in the lobby, there was one receptionist there, and there was nobody there. Nobody. I said, hey, I'm here to see uh, Lauren Eckert. lady got on the phone, and she said, uh, she said, there's somebody here to see Lauren Eckert. Big, long pause. She said, what's your name? I said, it's Michael Jones. And she said, his name's Michael Jones. And I, I said, I'm the pastor. Oh, you're the pastor. Oh, he's clergy. He's clergy. I'm sitting him up. You know, I, I don't think they would have sent me up if I hadn't said I was the pastor. 
So then I go up, and the, man, I got to go to this security door. I get, I get up to the lobby. Nobody there. Nobody there. There's a receptionist sitting at the desk. Nobody there. I go to the security uh, thing. I ring the doorbell. Yeah, who are you? I'm Michael Jones. And this time I was like, I'm clergy. <laughs> well, hold on a second. I don't know. It took them a while. And finally, they buzzed the door, and I went in there. There's nobody in there. I go in the room. I fellowship with the Eckerds. We pray for Luke and just have a good time and all of that kind of stuff. And you know what I told Mindy later? I said, you know, I got to go see... Uh, uh, Luke and Lauren and Lance and, and got to spend time with them. And I said, but this, this stuff to me is really aggravating still. All of this stuff, it's, it's aggravating. I didn't get to go to the hospital and see Ashley and, and Leon and, and Julian. I, I didn't get to do that. This, I said, this is one of the biggest moments in their life. One of the single biggest moments of their life. And they can't even have people around them to celebrate with. Now, now, I'm not speaking for them. Maybe they're watching on live stream tonight. I, I, I don't, maybe they're like, good, we don't want anybody up here. <laughs> That's fine, but that should be their decision. But, but, but the point I'm trying to make is, if, if COVID taught us anything, is that we need people. We need this face-to-face interaction. We, we, we need this together. And I want to give you real quick three lies we believe when we miss church. One is this, I don't need this. Let me tell you something. You do need this. I need this. We all need If you're a believer, you need this. God never intended for you to live your Christian life in a vacuum by yourself. Never. Never. That's why he established and he instituted the local church with all different kinds of believers brought together for his glory and his purpose because you need this. And to say that you don't need the message that's going to be preached Sunday morning or Sunday night or next Wednesday night or the next Sunday after that or the next Wednesday after that, 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 that's just wrong. You do need this. Here's another lie we believe. I don't need them. Can I tell you something? You need one another. Even the person in this room that aggravates you the most. And some of you might be sitting there going, I'm looking at him. Well, I'm just telling you, you need me and I need you. You do. See, God added to his church. And he knew exactly the right pieces to put together and he knows how much we need each other. Here's another thing. I threw this one in. Here's another lie. I don't need you, meaning the pastor. Because the truth of the matter is, is everybody needs a pastor. They do. That's why God gave them. You say, well, well, pastor, who's your pastor? I have one. I feel like I have men in my life that I consider my pastor, that I call for counsel, that I, I, I call for spiritual encouragement. Everybody needs some spiritual leadership in their life. And I'm just telling you, if you've kind of gotten to the place where, man, I've got enough Bible figured out, and that's just bad attitude. And I think Thomas is a good warning to all of us not to miss a single church service. His disposition and his isolation compounded his struggle with disbelief. All right, I know I have to hurry. Number two, there are reactions to unbelief. Maybe you've heard the quote, and it's a good quote, life is 10% of what happens and 90% how you react to it. And the truth of the matter is, is Thomas did not react well uh, to this struggle that he was going through with losing Jesus. But that forces us to ask the question, what would have the right reaction have been? 
Well, I think you see the right reaction when you study Jesus in all of this. Remember, Jesus is the hero of every story. So in this story, we're, th- we're talking about Thomas and from the angle of Thomas, but Jesus is the hero of every story. And so Jesus, notice this, he comforted Thomas in his fear. Notice how he said, peace be unto you. Now, I who have a tendency to be more prophetic in nature, I, I think that's a gift of God to give me prof- a prophecy, if you will, or foretelling. And so I have a tendency to be a little bit more prophetic in my demeanor and the way I present things. But Jesus could have taken that approach. I mean, he could have looked at Thomas when he, when he appeared that next Sunday night and said, hey, serves you right for missing church, jerk. Come on, he could have said that. I mean, he, he could have said, hey, toughen up, buttercup. Listen, I, I've invested three and a half years of life in you, and I'm expecting you guys to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and establish churches in the known world. And if you're going to serve me, you're going to have to be a whole lot stronger than this if you're going to make it in this world. Hey, get your act together, Thomas. I'll be honest with you, that would have been my, my approach. But Jesus said, peace be unto you. See, Jesus has a lot of weak children in his family, but he never disowns them. Jesus has a lot of slow learners in his school, but he never expels them. He has a lot of wounded soldiers in his army, but he never forsakes them. And it should be a reminder of our church. Hey, listen, there's a brother or sister that's struggling with some doubts. Let's be very careful that we don't adopt the attitude. Well, they know better than that. Let's try and help them along. That's what Jesus did. Notice what else he did. He he not only comforted Thomas in his fear, he convinced Thomas in his unbelief. You know, hey guys, there are some things that just leave no doubt. I mean, the earth is round. No doubt about that. Uh, I was trying to think, what else is there no doubt about? Ice cream is good. No doubt about that. And I'll tell you another thing there's no doubt about. Dogs are better than cats. Amen. Yeah, listen to you guys. <laughs> Everybody knows. There's no doubt about it. Let me tell you something. I'm trying, brother. But if you're going to doubt something, doubting a guy who was executed on a cross and run through with a spear, doubting that that guy is alive is a pretty legitimate thing to doubt. And I watched him die. (laughs) I mean, and so notice that Jesus was happy to meet Thomas in his doubt, but I want you to notice something else in this text. Jesus was not content to leave him there. So that's why he says, hey, 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 hey. Come on, put your hands in there. Come on, come on, put your, put, your hand, put your hand in here. Now, the interesting thing is the Bible never says whether he did or didn't. But it does say that Jesus said, I understand you having doubts, and I want to meet you in your doubts, but I'm not going to leave you in your doubts. And I take you back to some of those questions that we asked ourselves. Hey, listen, you might be asking, is the Bible really God's word? Hey, Jesus will meet you in your doubt, but he will not leave you there. Hey, is God real? Is God good? Is heaven real? Is hell real? Hey, God will meet you in your dust, but he will not leave you there. 
Now, I personally don't believe that Thomas was right in how he dictated the terms to Jesus. You notice how he said that? I, I will not believe unless I can do this. He dictated these terms. But I want you to notice that Jesus was awful big in graciously providing the evidence that Thomas demanded. So I just want to say to you as we move on here, again, if we can make that application to our church, as a church, we must comfort and confirm the doubts of unbelievers. In fact, that's one of the responsibilities of pastors in Titus 1.9, that he may be able to buy sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That's what Jesus did. Third thing, we'll get out of here. There is relief from unbelief. There is relief from unbelief. Again, having questions is all well and good, but it's only half the job. Listen, church, at some point, you're going to have to trust God and live by faith. I can give you all kinds of reasons and answers and verses and all of these things. Your brothers and sisters can say, hey, well, you, you know, you think about this, and hey, that's a good question, and here's the answer to that. But listen, at some point, you're going to have to just trust God and live by faith. That's what God has always wanted. Hey, he wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe. We sang about it tonight. Oh, for grace to trust him more. And so notice in our text, that's exactly what Thomas did. At, at some point, he put aside his disbelief, and he said, my Lord and my God. And then you ought to highlight that, square it, circle it, do something to that verse in your Bible. Because notice, Thomas went from being the biggest doubter in the room to being the most confident believer in the room. That's pretty awesome. Here's a good quote, I liked it. Doubt does not need to be a threat, but sometimes an uncomfortable friend who calls us down quietly, or calls us down quiet and difficult paths that lead us to discover more of who God is. Can I say that again? Here was Thomas struggling with his doubt, struggling with his disbelief, and he, and he finally came to the conclusion, my Lord and my God. And so I, I read this quote again. Doubt does not to, need to be a threat, but sometimes an uncomfortable friend who calls us down quiet and difficult paths that lead us to discover more of who God is. Again, his nature to doubt brought him to a place where he had greater confidence in God. It was awesome for Thomas to see Jesus. But that was not what relieved him. Not seeing Jesus. You see, we are not saved by seeing. We are saved by believing. And that's what he did. See, see understand, John is writing this. Remember John? And John wasn't writing a biography to entertain people. He was not writing a biography to record history for people. Out of all of the Gospels, the intention and motive for why he was writing, John was the most specific of why he was writing. And he was writing that all the world might believe on him. He was writing a Gospel tract, if you will, to evangelize and change men's lives. In fact, he says it in the context of what we're reading of Thomas. Look at verse 31. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. He, he didn't say that seeing. He said that believing. And I want you to notice that when men believed in Jesus, he changed their life. 
Let's think about John's gospel real quick and we'll get out of here. But that railing thief that mocked Jesus, that railing thief became a defender of Jesus because he believed. At one point he said, hey, why don't you say, get us down off of here if you're who you're And then after a while he said, hey, leave him alone. This is the Son of God. Hey, Tim and Nicodemus, the one that wanted to meet under the cover of darkness at night, when he stopped doubting and started believing, he became an unashamed believer. Think about Peter, my favorite character. Unfaithful Peter became a powerful preacher because of his belief. Persecuting Saul became church planning Paul because of his belief. And disbelieving Thomas, if you study church history, there's a significant amount of evidence that indicate that Thomas became like all of the other apostles. He became a powerful servant of God that was used to really evangelize and plant churches and influence people. And again, I'm just telling you tonight, if you believe him, he will replace your doubts with confidence. You know, at some point, you're just going to say, I don't understand all this. And I've got some questions. But I'm going to believe it. And I can tell you this. If you have enough faith to step out and do that, you will never be disappointed. Never. Let me ask you some questions tonight. Question number one is this. Do you struggle with doubt? Do you struggle with doubt? If you're saying, yeah, I do, actually. I, I, I do struggle with that. Well, then let me ask you a follow-up question. What causes that? Is it your disposition? Are you naturally a doubter like that? You're naturally maybe pessimistic in your, in your nature? Hey, maybe you're struggling with doubt because you've isolated yourself. And it doesn't surprise me if somebody struggles with doubt when they haven't been to church in months. That's not going to help you solve your problem. It's only going to compound it. The second set of questions is this, is how do you react to doubt in your own mind? How do you react to doubt in other people? Do you react with impatience? Or do you react with kindness? My third and final question is this, is will you openly take your questions to Him and accept the answers that He gives you? Again, if, you, if you've been attending here, you know we've been going through the letter of Habakkuk together, or the prophet Habakkuk together. Isn't that what happened? We talked about that this last Sunday. Habakkuk in chapter 1, boy, he's, he's upset. He's got doubts. He's got questions. He doesn't understand why God is doing what he's doing. But then when God comes and gives him an answer, it's amazing. Habakkuk says, oh, I think I'll be quiet now. I'm just going to trust God. That's what we need to do. I pray the Lord will help us tonight.